This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Art World Conference, a business and financial empowerment conference for artists and arts professionals. As cultural partners, we're bringing you an ongoing series of exclusive interviews with guest speakers, working artists, and business experts. Since this podcast is hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language. So if there are sensitive ears around you, be sure to pop in some headphones before you listen. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to drop in to let you know that we recorded this in the middle of April 2020. Uh, We don't normally add date disclaimers to our episodes, but this year every day is shifting so quickly, so it is worth mentioning when these conversations exist. So if you're listening to it and you're thinking, wow, they're really not talking about blank, it's not because we're trying to avoid the subject, we just, it hasn't happened when we had the conversation. Even though when we're having the conversation is obviously influencing the type of conversation that we're having, this one is still very appropriate and I think will continue to be so long after 2020. So we hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for listening. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio podcast, we are really fortunate to be welcoming Patton Hindle to the show, uh, who is the head of arts at Kickstarter. Patton, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. I am pulling this directly off of your uh, website. So uh, just to give our listeners a little bit more of an introduction uh, to you and your work, uh, Patton is the head of arts at Kickstarter, where she oversees the arts and performance teams whose specialists work closely with visual and performing artists, arts organizations, museums, and cultural institutions around the world to help them realize creative and ambitious ideas. We are obviously recording this against the backdrop of COVID-19, and while the entire conversation won't revolve around the pandemic, um, this is something that we're in the midst of that's affecting artists in a major way. Most, if not all, museums, uh, gallery spaces, art institutions are temporarily closed. Many creative people are finding themselves suddenly without work, and it's a precarious time. And our mission is to use Beyond the Studio podcast as a way of digging into the behind the scenes of what it really looks like to be an artist in a really transparent way, um, and especially now to shed light on the ways that artists are banding together and navigating through this global crisis. So part of our reason for wanting to have this conversation with you is that uh, Kickstarter is a platform that has always supported artists by leveraging the collective power of community and supporting self-initiated projects. This is more important now than ever, I think. And um, so we'd love to talk with you about the ways that creative communities are coming together to rely on one another while building um, self-sufficient models of funding and support. So we'll get into all of that. But um, just to kind of start us off, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your role and the role of Kickstarter Arts. 
Sure. Um, so I've been at Kickstarter for almost three years now, and primarily my role is to start talking to and working with artists or cultural institutions that are interested in using Kickstarter. Um, and sometimes that's them approaching us, and a lot of times it's also me sort of going to exhibitions, um, traveling to biennials, things like that, and observing the kind of work that's being made and finding those artists really, for me, who are at the precipice in their career, where having the opportunity to run a Kickstarter project might actually help them sort of take that next step. So a good example of this would be like the number of artists that we work with who aren't receiving traditional recognition, but we know are making great work, run a project and then become Guggenheim fellows. We just had someone win an award last week who was one of a major artists that we worked with last year. And we knew that they were just oh, sort of at that point and needed the sort of the leverage, the ability to have like the power of Kickstarter behind them, a community recognizing the work and making something that might be challenging that would be harder to fund in a traditional format. And so outside of that, I mean, I also manage it, you know, I have a team of people, one person in particular, Jess, who oversees performance. So she's working within theater and dance as well. So we're not just speaking about visual arts. Um, and then there's also Daniel who works with me primarily on visual arts projects but with a specialty in photography as well. And I believe he's also been um, a speaker in the, in the Art World Conference and um, someone who's, you know, sort of out there in the world as well. So we kind of, we do everything like nuts and bolts of talking to someone through coaching them, trying to alleviate the stress of what it is to run a Kickstarter project because it can seem like the sort of insurmountable beast to a lot of people, but also let, teaching them ways to harness their community and teaching them ways to get people excited about their creative work. So that's a little bit about what I do. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you have a, a really small but mighty team for doing all this work. So it, it sounds like you're almost, would you say like an internal consultant or like coaching for artists that are producing Kickstarter projects? Yeah. So we, so basically we sit on a team within the company that's called Outreach and International. So for me, I oversee arts, but there's also um, a senior director of documentary film, a senior director of um, narrative film. There's a head of games. There's, you know, every category that Kickstarter operates within. Um, we have someone sort of in this role and we're responsible essentially for the communities. We can't simply like, there's no way we could touch every project that comes on the platform or talk to every person. What we're trying to do is think of the sort of like idea ideal, what we call creators, because we cross so many categories, but for me, artists, the ideal artists who are going to set a really good example and inspire people to also want to come to the platform and run projects and see what what could be done on it. And we've done insane things like For Freedoms. We helped them launch, launch their um, 50 state initiative in 2018, which is like us also slightly bending our rules to like as a company to allow them to run more than one project at once. They ran 52 projects at once, which is insane. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to see the value in creative work. And, you know, Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation. Um, we reincorporated as that in 2015. And that's really a sign that we put our mission above the needs of our shareholders. So we're committed to making creative work come to life and everything that goes along with that makes us be sort of a more responsible business. So in a traditional structure, I, there might not be like, I have one of the bigger teams in outreach and international. There might not be a team my size. Actually, it might just be one person because we don't bring a ton of financial value overall to the company but we care about arts. Like that's been the core of what this company was. It was founded by a visual artist and it will always sort of have that at its heart. So we are, I guess, like small but mighty, I guess is a good way to say it, you're right. <laughs> yeah, that actually relates to one of the, the questions that I had and I was wondering if we could go back to the origins of Kickstarter and talk a little bit about its original mission. 
because when I think of Kickstarter, which seems like one of the, the leaders of this crowdfunding movement, I think of it as kind of an alternative to some of these traditional top-down funding models for artists and meant to sort of democratize this old world idea of patronage by allowing artists or musicians and performers to self-publish or self-start these projects in direct collaboration with their collectors or audience or followers. And I was reading that, uh, and I actually didn't think about this earlier, but Kickstarter had emerged out of the 2008 recession. And so I was wondering if you could share just a little bit about Kickstarter's origin story and you know how you would describe the, the mission since the context has shifted a little bit, but we're also on the brink of a similar Similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so our founder, uh, we had three three co-founders with the person who originally had the idea for it was Perry Chen. Um, and he was actually living in New Orleans in the early 2000s. Um, he's originally from New York, was living in New Orleans, and he wanted to bring this like techno group to New Orleans Jazz Fest. He couldn't find, I think he needed like $20,000. It wasn't a ton of money, but he couldn't find one sponsor to sign up and pay for this group to come. So in that context, he's, you know, he's talking to his friends, he knows people who are excited about this, this group. And he's like, shit, you know, like if I could just get 20 of my friends together to give some smaller amounts of money, we might be able to make this happen or 200 of my friends, you know, people, I, I feel like there's another way, another mechanism that needs to exist for this. He moved back to New York a couple of years later uh, and he was uh, living, well, he was hanging out in Williamsburg at Diner, um, a nice New York institution. And he met um, Yancey Strickler there, and who was bartending. And Yancey Strickler was a, a journalist and primarily in music. And they started talking about this idea that Perry had had years ago and started thinking, well, like, maybe we should do this. Like, we should probably make this happen. But neither of them knew how to code or actually build a web platform. So they found their third co-founder, Charles Adler. Um, and Charles came in and really was like a designer and basically built the platform. Um, and it launched in on April 28th. We're almost at our birthday. <laughs> April 28th of 2009. Um, but we're talking like years of him thinking about this. Like this, I think he originally started thinking about it in like 2004 in New Orleans. So we're talking a long time period to get this thing up and running. And the first project that launched failed because Kickstarter is all or nothing. So they did not reach the funding goal. But then the second one was successful and then more and more and more came along. But really at that moment for Perry, it was one, being able to bring a community of support together, but two, we're also, we've seen and we still are seeing that funding for the arts in the United States is diminishing. And if you can't get governmental funding, how are you supposed to make something happen? Um, but I think simultaneously, it's also thinking about like, how can people participate in something and how can you meet them at the level that they're at? And so when we talk about this traditional notion of patronage, I mean, we are still dealing with patronage. We're just meeting people at a different fiscal level, something that's actually attainable for, for people. Like I'm 30, almost 35 years old, people in my generation who, you know, graduated from university into that recession. Like how much spare income could I possibly have to give to something? I can't give $10,000 to an artist, but could I give them like 50 bucks, 200 bucks, something like that towards a creative project that I care about? Yeah. So it's a way to also engage with another, and for me, it's really another generation. And we know with our backers on the platform that 60, I think it's 64% of them are between the ages of 24 and 44, which is not how most cultural institutions think about what their patrons are. 
it's a totally different age demographic. So, you know, for us, the origin of this really makes sense. And you're right, we are and we're, we were born out of a recession and we're definitely heading right into one again right now. So finding alternative streams to fund your creative endeavors are becoming incredibly important. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop trying to lobby the government. Kickstarter does actually. Uh, we lobby for the funding of the NEA consistently. We send our legal counsel down to DC every year because we also keep getting touted as an example of why we should be cutting funding for the NEA because we've actually given more money towards creative projects than the government has in the last 10 years. But we're supposed to be supplemental. Like we're supposed to be the, almost like the band-aid is what I like to call us. We're the thing to like fix and change the way that people envision patronage and creative funding so that it's like, if we're so good at it, we just disappear because we've actually changed the way that we can engage with creative work. Yeah, it's like you were more of a, a reaction to the problem and they're like, there, that's the solution. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're just trying to fix something. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what would you say based on that is Kickstarter's overall mission or goal? I mean, if they were to fulfill that goal, then would would Kickstarter not exist? Would the way that it looks evolve? Yeah, that's like a traditional sort of nonprofit way of thinking too, actually, that if you're so good at what you do, you don't exist. I mean, it's going to take decades for for something like this to change. We've already been around for, we're about to be 11. So we've been around for almost 11 years now, and we still haven't shifted that narrative that much. We have become, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, more integral to artists funding their creative work. Um, as things are getting, as financially things are getting cut. I mean, it's different now in this current environment, but like my job is also to travel internationally. So it's not just the U.S. that we are operating in. So, you know, I was in Germany, I was in Berlin last year, and I'm hearing all these cultural institutions that used to be super well funded by the government are not being funded by the government anymore. And Paris, same thing, or sorry, in France, same thing. All these cultural institutions are like, how we have to now, we're being told we have to operate the, in the American way. And that's scary to me because once you start limiting government funding and become solely reliant on private funding, it creates a big problem. I think it was in the 2016 um, or 2014, 2016 NEA report that $1 government funding in the U.S. equaled $16 of private funding. So if you lose that $1, it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that you're going to get infinitely more private money. You actually need that government money to set off the fundraising from the private entities. And within this, I guess I didn't answer your question, but our mission, I mean, our mission has always been the same. It's to help bring creative projects to life. It's clearly stated on the platform. That's part of us being a PBC is that we have to uphold that as like our North Star. Um, we certainly have other sort of, uh, not missions, but like, and or mandates. I'm trying to think of the best word for it, but like sayings, I guess, within the organization, which is fuck the monoculture. Because if we all, which is what my biggest fear is right now and what's happening, if only these big, big entities survive, then we're just going to be stuck with a monoculture. And there's not going to be any anything interesting really that's coming out, anything that's pushing against the norms. And then also that we believe that art is essential to any vibrant and well-functioning society. So those are the things that are sort of are at our core. And then we have a more like adopted from that also, you know, charter that talks about how we'll never sell data, how we give back 5% of our after-tax profits every year to arts and culture, education, and diversity and inclusion nonprofits in New York. I mean, there are other things that come folded into being a PBC, but our mission is and will always be to help bring creative projects to life. Mm-hmm. And has Kickstarter collaborated with cultural institutions as well then? You mentioned in your travels, in addition to supporting independent artists. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we were first founded, we were definitely seen as just supporting independent artists 
individuals, like independent artists. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it started to shift. And this is probably a sign of also like generationally what's happened in the U.S. But we started to have more institutions coming on the platform, too. So the Jewish Museums run a project. Public Art Funds run two. Creative Times run two projects. Queen's Museum, LACMA, uh, the Royal Academy in the U.K. So we have major cultural institutions running projects. And I think it's for them, it's one, trying to be more accessible, um, a way of like reaching an audience that they might not normally. And to be super frank, I also think that they're trying to find a different generation of patron because they're worried about what's happening with the demographics of their of their board, of their patron support right now, which is primarily skewed so much older. And if those that group is going to not exist at some point, they have to figure out how they're going to move and replace that. Yeah, I was going to ask that with with Kickstarter's primary demographic being in the, what did you say, it was 24 to 40 something range, if that's part of their move to, to reach out to, the, to those types of supporters and, and if that's helping them fill a financial need. It is, but I think it's also like if you have the right artists, like some artists just want to do, like if an artist is making social practice work, I think Kickstarter is a social practice platform. Like you're allowing people into a creative process, you're inviting them to participate and collaborate in it. So to me, it makes sense that social practice work would exist very easily on the platform too. I was wondering too to share with with our audience who they've probably heard of Kickstarter, maybe they've had some Kickstarter projects, but before we move into some of your your own story too, to talk a little bit about some of the other uh, resources or ways that Kickstarter does support artists, like maybe the, you know, the blog or the Creative Independent, which I had discovered separately and then only later found out that this was something that was run or managed by Kickstarter and, you know, what's what are those things and what's the relationship between Kickstarter and those other projects or branches. The Creative Independent, which we call TCI, is an emotional and practical resource for being a creative. So it spans like all creative categories, writing, music, art, filmmaking, etc. And it started originally as long-form interviews with um, creative people to talk about how they existed, not necessarily what specifically they were making. So it was a way for you to read an interview. Like if I read a Hilton Owls piece, like an interview with him, and I and I understood how he was living, how he made up his income, how he existed. I might take solace in that if I was a writer. Um, It has actually in the last about two years or so spawned into also having guides. I actually wrote the first one, which was how to work with collectors, uh, galleries and collectors as an emerging artist. And yeah, yeah, I think we we realized that a lot of this stuff isn't being taught in MFA programs. And it's a real shame (laughs) because if you spend that much money on an MFA, you would probably want to know just some like ins and outs of the industry. And I get why they don't do it, but it also feels like it might be a disservice to a lot of students. So we started to provide those kinds of guides. There's even um, a a guide on like financial planning. There's one on doing your taxes. There's one on how to get an O-1 visa. So things around like areas that we know a lot of creative people struggle with and there's not really a resource for it yet. In terms of other things that the company does, I mean, my job isn't also just to like bring in Kickstarter projects. It's also to be sort of a thought leader in the field about what the current state of like the arts industry is. So within that, that means that I'm like speaking doing thought leadership speaking about like the current state of the art world and I've been in the arts for 12 years now (laughs) Um, so really trying to think through like the ins and outs of like how we can be seen as being aware of what's going on and what are the challenges and then as a company are the there are things that we can do to respond to that we also have internally like um, we have a creators and residence program so we have a residency um, that's offered about two two to three times a year depending on the year it's being rethought right now given what's happening because we don't 
have our office space. But within that, we have people apply and we offer them office space, like desk space, essentially, but also the use of our resources, meaning like we have a theater. So if you're a filmmaker, you can screen a film there. If a podcast studio, you can record podcasts in the in the office as well. And then you also have the like advice of the people who sit on the team that I am on, the outreach and international team. So people who are essentially mentors as someone might be building towards running a Kickstarter project um, or doing something within our ecosystem, but it also allows our engineers to talk to them, to understand sort of like the hiccups or challenges of a creative process and then how they can think creatively as they're you know, designing our product to make it more attuned to the needs of a creative person, to our user. Hmm. And what's the selection process for that residency like? Um, it's an applica- It's a written application and then you usually propose a project that you specifically would want, like what you would specifically want to do in that time. And then it's read by a group of people on the team that I'm on. Um, people just volunteer. It, it changes every time, but they volunteer. And then someone says, you know, from each category, like I think Daniel has our upcoming um, creator in residence. But right now, actually, you know, we're thinking about how we can make it in this current situation more open. Um, So we may be doing more open like webinars on how to run projects or things that are specific to the industry and offering more sort of evergreen resources to creatives because we don't want it to be just limited to that pool of people. Yeah, the the guides that you mentioned on the Creative Independent are really great, and I was curious about them because it does seem like a just a purely um, educational branch, whereas Kickstarter's platform is, seems more about funding individual projects. But it's funny, we um, I, I think we all related to what you said earlier, and we, uh, like Amanda mentioned, maybe before we started recording, but we were just coming off of an interview with uh, another podcast, and so we were talking about this, this gap in professional development at the art college level. Um, I also work in career development at California College of the Arts in San Francisco, so that was, you know, a lot of our conversation revolved around that. Um, so, you know, just always looking for, for resources, and I think there is such a need for that. That's, you know, a, a big part of why we are doing the podcast as well. So I think those resources and, and those stories are really um, critical for, for other artists. And so I appreciate that blend on the Creative Independence blog. How do you see that fitting in with, is there usually some kind of a direct tie or connection to what's happening on the Kickstarter platform? Or is this sort of its own entity that's meant to be purely educational? It's its own entity. I mean, it's meant to be purely educational, but certainly like artists who run Kickstarter projects often become people who are interviewed too, just because that is like an easy correlation. Daniel, I actually have never, I've written one, but I've never interviewed someone. I have the artist who actually just won the Guggenheim Fellowship, Steve Locke. I'm supposed to interview him and I probably should take advantage of that given our at home times right now. (laughs) But Daniel definitely has interviewed um, people as well. So we, it comes out to the staff basically sometimes to do it because the TCI staff itself is quite small. It's like three people. So, I mean, wow. we're, we're a pretty small company. I think people think that we're this like big tech monolith, but we're at mm-hmm. most like 160 people as a company. And that's part of us being a PBC is that like, we have to be really careful and deliberate in who we hire and the kinds of roles that we're hiring for. We can't become this giant thing because <laughs> we don't have VC funding. We operate on our own profits. That's it. Very hard to get funding as a, a public benefit corporation when you can't promise extreme returns because you are putting your mission ahead of the need of your shareholders. It's just a non-traditional business structure. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. What motivated that move, if you know, or and what was the, the previous 
how was Kickstarter set up before then? It sounded like this was fairly recent in its history. Yeah, it's, it was five years ago. We were set up as an LLC, um, I believe, or an Inc., but just a traditional corporation. And then our lawyers at the time approached the founders and said, hey, there's this new business structure that's available. And it speaks to everything that you're already kind of doing, but it sort of lets you put like, you know, your foot in the ground and, or your stake in the, in the ground and say, this is what we stand for. Um, and I think... For Perry specifically, like that's he's the one you know who cares who cares deeply about this stuff, and I actually think it's amazing because for me it's the first time I've had a job that feels uncompromised in the art world. I'm not trying to sell something to somebody. I only want them to run a project if they feel good about doing it. There's just so much that goes into that. It also makes us safe to work with. People know that they're we're not going to try and rob them blind or do something crazy or extort them because that's like what we've decided we care about. It also means that we like fight for things that we think are incredibly important, like net neutrality. You know, I guess another good way of thinking about this is like Patagonia is also a public benefit corporation. And I think King Arthur Flower is the other one that's pretty well known. And it's B B Corp certifications, which are um, similar to this, have existed for a longer, which we were a certified B Corp. But a PBC means that you actually have to like legally report on how much you're holding up to your mission. So we issue a report every year, our PBC report, that highlights some of the projects and like how we've lived up to our mission, what our diversity and inclusion is, how our pay scale is completely in check, like our CEO does not make a crazy amount of money. Um, everybody's very much in a specific range in the company. It's just trying to think through like that businesses don't have to operate the way that they always have. And you can be a good citizen as a business instead of just being out there for profit on the backs of artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also nice because it sort of sets the pace for like, we're going to hold ourselves accountable for the things that we commit to. And we're actually going to do it in a way that forces us to, and it's not just something that we're saying. Yeah. So I think that that helps so much to build trust, especially mm-hmm. when money is involved in creative projects, because those are things that are personal and you need. Um, but being able to trust the platform that you're working with makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we set the industry standard too, for like the fees that are taken. We take 5% of every successful project. If a project doesn't reach its funding goal, we don't take any money. No one's credit cards are charged. There's just certain things that like build in this layer of trust and honesty, but us just trying to be as transparent as possible with our community. And 5% is quite reasonable. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about percentages of like what gets taken out from, I do a, like a maker business. So I do Uh a lot of like wholesale and retail and I'm like, Oh, 5% sounds so much better than, than, you know, these other breakdowns. Was it 50% or? Yeah, I was just saying like, I was like, also like a gallery, (laughs) thinking about a gallery structure or I used to work at um, artspace.com, which is a art and e-commerce platform and knowing the percentages that we worked with with galleries, which was like similar to an art advisor. So 5% is significantly lower. This is like a little bit of a segue, but this is, and super basic. What are things, if someone's trying to put together a Kickstarter campaign, what are some pieces of advice that you would recommend or or ways that people can differentiate themselves or or make their projects stand out or more successful? Well, you're definitely still, uh, I think the thing to know is that you're reliant, you are reliant on your community for this. So it's not like you launch it on the platform into an ether and like it will just fund. (laughs) It's like running a small 
small business for 30 days, essentially, which I actually think is a good, a good lesson for many artists, um, just to, to go through it as an exercise. But I think first and foremost, thinking about what it is that you want to make, but also then who are the audiences that care about that kind of work and who, how can you speak to them in doing it? So what are the kinds of things that you could offer them that might excite them? One of my favorite rewards, although this is definitely with an institution, but I just think it's a, it's an interesting use of how you can engage a community and, and get them excited to give money um, to, to a creative project. Public Art Fund did a project with Ai Weiwei and when he did his Good Fences Make Good Neighbors in New York City and they had a limited reward. It was like 10, it was only limited to 10 backers and it was a disposable camera that Weiwei shot while he was installing and then you just got mailed the camera. Oh my God. But that's like, and that's a light lift for him to do. It's super easy. And then like, imagine being the backer, you won't know, you get the camera and then you develop it. So like, there's also some excitement and interactivity with that as well. But anyways, in terms of advice, the other thing I say is like, be realistic with your goal. Um, Really think about what it is that's going, that it's going to take for you to make this thing. And in that, don't forget to compensate yourself, which is the number one thing that people don't do. (laughs) They always forget to compensate themselves. And it's for us, we've, we've actually built a project tool now. So when you're, when you're in project build and you're like setting up your your, um, page, there's actually a budget in there that allows you and reminds you to pay yourself as part of it, because Uh that's very common in creative work. We're just like, so happy to make the thing that we forget that also we had time and labor that went into it as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like we talk about that on the podcast a lot where it's like, don't forget to pay yourselves like you are your employee. Treat yourself the way you would want a boss to treat you. Exactly. (laughs) But it's hard. It is hard. But I think if you're making something that's good to share with other people, you're going to excite them. You're going to engage with them. And I'm saying like, when you think about community, don't think of like, I have to know every single person who's going to give money to this or like support this project. Think about like five to 10 people, you know, go through, this is like one of Daniel's favorite tips. And I think it's great. Look through your phone for like the last 20 people you texted and think about who those people are in your life. And if you could ask them to support the project, or if they can't fiscally support it, ask them if they can share it with five other people. And that builds a sort of like networked tree of it. Yeah, that's good advice. So we talked a little bit about how Kickstarter as a company emerged out of the last recession. And so I'm wondering in what ways, um, maybe more recently, have you seen or do you think Kickstarter is filling a need for artists now? And from your perspective, if you've been noticing any trends um, on Kickstarter, either with the way people are starting or supporting projects? Sure. I mean, I think... So we're about, I mean, in New York, this is like week, this is, I think, my fifth week of being at home. <laughs> um, so you're yeah, definitely seeing a similar timeline. Yeah. So you're definitely seeing a, a shift in the kinds of projects that people are making. We actually launched a prompt um, mm-hmm. to encourage people, if they feel up to it, to make smaller things from home, um, to try and remind them that you can actually be creative in your space, but also not to feel pressure. Like if you don't want to make something, don't make something. There's no... No pressure there. We definitely, in all honesty, have seen a decline in projects, but what's interesting is that we're not seeing a decline in pledges. So there's fewer projects on the platform, but the they're consistently being funded in the same way that we always see on the platform. So we know people are willing to support things right now, 
We just want people to run projects. <laughs> um, so it's good to know at least that like the net of a supportive community exists there. What we are, have been working on is also like how, because in order to run a project, it has to be creating something new. It has to be a creative work. So you can't do general fundraising on it like you can on a platform like GoFundMe. And GoFundMe is like swimming with projects right now of closed restaurants and bars and spaces. So we've been trying to think through how can we talk to those kinds of spaces and community and who have like a built-in community of fans about how they could use the platform and actually make something new. And we had this project launched 10 days ago um, for a bar that's actually, in all honesty, a local favorite of everyone at Kickstarter because we're in Greenpoint, but St. Vitus. Um, it's a music venue and a bar, and they launched a project where actually twice a week they're actually releasing new rewards that are like limited edition things made by people or like private concerts over Zoom, things that they can do to help keep themselves afloat. And they're using the funds to basically make sure that the space stays alive. It's doing incredibly well, um, and it's also getting a lot of press for it too, because they really thought through like creating something new for them in this instance was like creating these like interesting new rewards that are bringing more art to people. So we're trying to encourage spaces like that who feel up to it, like of the ways that they could do it. Cause we do find, we believe our model is, is good and successful because you're getting excitement around a moment or a thing, not this sort of like general open-ended entity. So we just have to help restaurants and, and businesses like that think through what that might look like for them. Well, I'm also interested to see what happens with like um, galleries or artists who run bigger studios that have like people who work there, like how we can think through what they could be making that doesn't have to assume a traditional sort of Kickstarter project. It could be something that sort of screws with it a little bit. We're definitely always interested in how artists play with the platform for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious how, so say someone wants to do a Kickstarter project and they're creative and they have all these ideas, but they are not sure what to apply to it or, you know, what to should choose. Mm -hmm. How do you, do you have advice for helping people figure out like what project kind of makes the most sense or, or what things to consider? Um, I don't know if this makes sense. No, it does. I mean, cause that's like half, you know, that's actually like half my job <laughs> is, yeah. is people coming to me with like a list of things and me telling them what I think is like the, probably going to have the, the most opportunity. First of all, it has to be something that's clearly communicated. So if it becomes like a complex thing to explain to even your friend, it's probably not a good idea to put it on the platform because it's going to be harder to communicate to a sea of backers on the internet. So I think that's the first and foremost. And then I would think about like, what is the impact? Like, is there accessibility? Is there something that you're creating that's like new and an audience could engage with from like the, you know, from anywhere essentially. And also we used to say this, although I'm, I've started moving away from this mostly in my own thinking because of how I want the platform to grow and change. But it used to be also like knowing where the thing would be exhibited would be important if it's art, let's say, or, or knowing what kind of an exhibition it would be in. But I've actually been trying to experiment more with artists running research and development phases of their projects. Um, because I think that, well, one, there's no funding for that in the United States, except for from like two granting organizations anymore. <laughs> so as we were talking about like paying yourself for your work and your labor, we kept getting projects on the platform where they would be, I'm trying to think like Dred Scott's, um, he ran this project for the slave rebellion reenactment in Louisiana, which is the largest slave, a historical reenactment of the largest slave rebellion that ever happened. And this project was like 10 years in the making and like years of research from him. And so when he came to us, I was, you know, I'm seeing this, he's got the idea, he's got some of the funding security and he's, he's 
doing the project for a portion of it, the Kickstarter project for a portion of it. But I realized he never compensated himself for those years of work. And so why can't an artist take an exploratory idea that's about maybe a relevant social issue right now and run a project for that on the platform at the earliest stage? And then as the backer, you become invested in this for like the long haul, like you're on the creative journey with the artist. It certainly takes the right artist to be able to open up their practice like that. And I know that there's nervousness in it, but what we've seen is that people will contribute. The artist who won the Guggenheim Fellowship, Steve Locke, last year ran a project for um, a slave auction block memorial in downtown Boston, so in Faneuil Hall. Faneuil Hall was named for um, a famous trader primarily who traded uh, black and brown bodies. So Steve was the artist in residence for the city of Boston, had the approval um, from the mayor to do this project, uh, and they had promised him $150,000, but he had to come up with the other $150,000. So I said, well, let's let's get on Kickstarter and let's run the project here for the early stage funding of this so that you can like pay everyone who's helping you do the architectural drawings and the things that you need that are outside of sort of your skill set and also compensate yourself for some of the years of research you've spent on this. So he runs the project, everything's, you know, and it funds, it actually reached its funding goal in less than a week. And then carries on because, you know, the project goes for 30 days, continues to do stretch goals, which is like a new, like, help me buy the bronze that needs to be poured for this. Um, and in this process, with about a week left in the Kickstarter project, he got caught in political crosshairs between a group that wanted to change the name of Faneuil Hall. And so in in this political crosshairs, the Boston branch of the NAACP came out in opposition of the project, which meant that the mayor couldn't move forward with it. The mayor, no, no mayor is going to stand against the NAACP. Um, so what Steve did, which was really brilliant, was <laughs> go through the years of outreach he did as like an artist of color living in the city of Boston and shared all of the years of outreach of him reaching out to the specific group um, and how they never showed up for him. And the first time they showed up was to shut down his project. So he thought he was going to, you know, he's enraged by this, but he shares this openly with his community on Kickstarter and says, you know what, I'm not going to do the project in Boston anymore. Unfortunately, there are dozens of other sites where this thing could exist. Probably going to look a little different and I don't know exactly where it's going to go, but I'm committed to this idea and I can make it happen. But I understand if you want to cancel your pledges. Two people canceled pledges, but he got like $3,000 more because of it, because he was honest and open. And that's a sign of people caring about the idea, not about the, the tangible physical thing. So for me, it's also thinking through how we can push against the norms and, and like get people invested in early stage. If the idea you know is relevant to a community or speaks to a group of people, they will show up for it. And it pays off to be really honest and vulnerable. Yes, it does. <laughs> definitely does. <laughs> this also makes me think about a conversation we had uh, recently with Amy Whitaker, who was another one of the speakers at Art World Conference. And obviously a lot of her work has to do with um, thinking about art and economics and ways that these things intertwine. And so talking a lot with her about um, this idea of investment and creating these models of support where artists are able to quote unquote invest in the early stage of each other's work and what could that look like? Um, you know, could we build a new way that would allow artists to retain some type of ownership or equity in their own work and, you know, make it more accessible to for, for people and for each other, you know, as other artists to invest in the work that we're doing up front that often does that we don't get compensated for. And we've talked about that a lot, too, with um, with different artists, just this idea of um, investing in, in your own work and career uh, before you see a return and that there is this this expectation that, you know, you're 
putting in a lot of um, time and resources um, and funding in a lot of cases up front in order to get something off the ground, you know, to get it to a point where you could potentially, you know, seek larger funding for a project or find grants for it or, you know, looking at whatever funding is available out there. So I love that idea of making it more open-ended to some of those earlier stages where there aren't necessarily those really tangible outcomes um, right away, but involving people in the process. That's even something we were talking a little bit about related to social media with this um, interview that Amanda and I just came off of, of how sort of like the, you know, the pitfalls, but also the the positive aspects of a platform like Instagram in in pulling back the curtain on an artist's process and life and, you know, how much you're choosing to reveal or share with others. But I feel like what that story demonstrates is when you do do that, you're involving people in your process and you're creating more opportunities for connection and community and then creating a, a way for people to support your work. Totally. I also think, well, first of all, I spoke to Amy Whitaker's classes this week just so you, to bring oh, it full circle you. for you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I spoke to them, I think, on Tuesday night. Uh, oh she's a friend. <laughs> oh, she's so good. She's the best. We, yeah, hers was a favorite conversation for sure. It, there was just so, so many new ideas. And I think, you know, having that perspective, that business-minded approach, but also, you know, being really empathetic and understanding of the needs of artists um, is such a unique blend and so we loved talking with her for that reason and she's great um, the other thing I would say though to add to that and the reason why I think you know yeah. perfect or imperfect Instagram or any of these tools of inviting someone into uh, your artistic process is I think it's really important to elucidate that the creative process doesn't go a b c d <laughs> it goes like a b f p back to see <laughs> a creative process has so many twists and turns in it that it's not if we only think of art let's say culture let's take ourselves out of being people who understand the art world if you're the general public if you only think of art as being this like consumable thing that's like packaged and handed to you perfectly that's really problematic because the amount of pressure that that puts on an artist to think that they have to operate in exactly those regimented ways is going to also probably lead to monoculture once again, but also stifle the sense of creativity um, and understanding and empathy from a community. And so I think being able to, as tough as it is to be vulnerable and open with that process is actually only gonna help another generation of people understand what it is to be a creative person. I found that when people are really honest about the the hardships and the realities of what being an artist looks like, it makes the experience as someone observing that that honesty so much easier because you're like, finally, someone is saying it. Like, it is so hard and I wish people would talk about that more. And I think that is an issue that we have in general where everyone feels the need to like, you know, culturally and socially present our best selves mm -hmm. exclusively when like we're complex people with problems that make mistakes and that learn things the hard way. And, and it's hard to, to put it out there, but it makes a big difference in how we can, I don't know, get through stuff by having that sense of honesty and vulnerability and like recognizing that emails is part of the art process and mm -hmm. running to get supplies and reading and listening to podcasts about art or business like it's all part of the work but oftentimes we just assume that the work is like when I sit down to draw that is when I am making art like, yeah like, it's not that all of the time <laughs> that I spend in my life is part of what makes those moments of drawing possible but it's hard to remember that when people are just talking about you know the dream of sitting in your studio with your dog and 
chilling. Tell me who, well, who yeah. lives that life. Well, yeah, the creative process is really messy. And so I think part of what's maybe what's so great and important about illuminating what that really looks like is that most people don't and and even a lot of artists I think again like the motivation for this podcast is not really understanding what goes into the work that artists are making and what allows them to do that and so I wonder if that is a little bit connected to why we um, we tend to devalue creative labor is because we just don't see necessarily all of the the work that goes into you know you see a a painting on a wall or you see the end output and you think oh this just came into being or this person just sat down and made this thing but there's obviously like you're saying there's there's so much else that goes into that and so there's I think an important educational piece there around um, making that more making that work more visible definitely I also think in general we haven't done the best job as an industry of like advocating for ourselves and I'm hoping I mean it's it's tough to say you know it's not a great thing to say, but in this crisis, I mean, I, we have the opportunity where everything's sort of like raised to the ground. So how do we rethink how we make the case for creative work now? The chair I'm sitting in was designed by somebody. <laughs> the counter I'm sitting at, you know, the, the painting on the wall, of course, but like all the things that we're consuming and are around us, we need to make sure that even the person who lives in the middle of America who has like home sweet home written on their wall and that like graphic text, that was designed by somebody. There's creative labor in that. And so we just need to be able to, as an industry, do a better job of making a case that everything that's around you actually came from a creative person. But the problem is that we've had a government for 30 years since the culture wars, basically, who have slowly chipped away at this image of like what it is to be an artist and put it out there to the most extreme, what they would call frivolous things. So we have to do a better job of advocating as an industry governmentally to help start to shift those narratives, but simultaneously also have to elucidate and share more with like the broad public and make them cognizant of what are, what is around them and the creative, the invisible creative labor that went into the things that are in their in their homes right now even. Yeah, I when I hear this term, you know, flattening the curve related to the pandemic, obviously it's related to how we're trying to stem the spread of this virus, but I have been thinking about it um, as it applies to the art world as well and the ways that, you know, it's in some ways it's just created this level playing field, like artists and institutions and galleries and museums are are all facing these same challenges together and so I'm I'm wondering, I guess, if there is going to be any sort of shift in the dynamics um, between those. And I'm wondering, maybe in what ways do you see this moment potentially shaping the way the art world operates um, for better or worse? A few things. One, I want people to band together more. Um, so far for me, the really there's been a few like emergency funds that have come together. And one in particular, the Artist Relief one um, that was... I mean, I've been talking with them for a while, but like the USA artists, Artadia, there are like seven cultural partners that came together to do this and pull together the funding. It's interesting to me that we have to turn to arts, small arts nonprofits to be able to solve a problem when we should be having a governmental response like they did in Germany. But seeing that coalition of people realizing that like actually if we each try and do our own thing it sort of fights against each other and if we actually just all came together and worked together we could actually make systemic change essentially so they have a 10 million dollar fund they're giving now 100 grants a week and and they're all emergency i mean they the first three days they were open they had over thirty thousand applications so it's it's scary how much 
it's needed right now. So I do think that there's something that's starting to happen, and you're seeing this like with NADA, which is the Young Art Galleries Association. You're seeing them come together and try and band and find ways to create relief funds for their gallery community, push forward legislation. I, I think like we have to start operating not as these individual silos and start actually banding together better as a community. And I do actually think from like a, a small gallery standpoint that that shift has been in the works for a while, mostly because of how the market has shifted to being so like top down. Um, it, it reflects basically all of our society, but uh, or our economic society. So I think you're seeing you already seeing more collaboration between smaller businesses before. Um, and artists have always been supportive of each other. That's the one thing. Like they've always figured out how to band together and do things. I think about like Four Freedoms, the organization I work with. I mean, that is like a massive community of artists that they've put together and cultural institutions too. So we are able to collaborate. We just have to figure out how to effectively speak to a government. Uh, and that's identifying the right sort of partners. I think Americans for the Arts is definitely the, the most important one. Um, they've done like a financial survey to see how small businesses and artists have been affected by this so that they know exactly what number they need to be lobbying for at a governmental level. But I don't know. I mean, what's going to come out of this? Like, unfortunately, there are going to be closures across across the board, but retail space is going to be real cheap. So if you can if you can figure something out, like there's actually going to be an opportunity to do something probably totally new and weird now because there are certain things that are now going to be easier to attain. And if it's simply space, which is what we say we need, then that's one option. I do think that the art world also, this is like the first time that they've really been pushed to figure out what a digital experience is. And you'll see, I mean, if you're on Instagram, you'll see number numerous galleries trying to use their Instagram stories to do takeovers. You know, I'm wondering who's developing the product to now like make a more virtual viewing experience. Like who is developing the software that actually would help us extend beyond the immediate confines of our specific spaces. And then the other thing that I hope, just from my own selfish standpoint, is that there are fewer art fairs. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would like to not have to travel. I don't travel to them that often, but I think that there has to be some consolidation in that area too, because it's gotten a little crazy. And galleries have spaces and artists want to have exhibitions in brick and mortar spaces. That will never change. So we have to find some way of like making sure that we're giving credence and ownership and space to the, the most traditional form of the model, which is like having a, a comprehensive thought out gallery exhibition versus something that's piecemeal of a couple pieces at an art fair. That doesn't explain an artist's process. Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's interesting looking at the ways that artists might be able to, to use this as some sort of opportunity, whether it's to obtain space or access to resources that may not have been as available. And thinking about what you said earlier too, about ways that artists, but also small businesses or restaurants can start to break down their their kind of general operating costs into smaller projects or uh, break that up into phases or create, you know, different experiences out of that that they can use to generate support in order to keep themselves going. So I think there is that creativity is needed in order to, um, to find new ways of supporting ourselves in this time. And you've mentioned a couple of times um, government funding and support. And there, I mean, there seems that there's this disconnect between the ways that artists are already supporting each other and that there is this kind of strong community element and then some of this higher level funding or support. Um, and so I was wondering, because I know you also published an article this week in Daily News that could almost be described as a call to action. Um, 
called In Coronavirus Quarantine, The Arts Keep Us Going. So why has the government turned its back on them? Um, and so I was wondering if you wanted to speak to this um, and then what are, are some of the ways that you s- see that, that artists can be better advocating for that type of support. Yeah. I mean, I think everything has to operate both on like a micro and macro scale, right? So the micro scale being that you're supporting your, your immediate community. Um, so if you're an artist, you're supporting your fellow artists, or if you have a studio practice, you're, you're doing what you can to take care of the people who work for you. I think the macro level to me is like advocating to a government, but also, as I was saying before, like acknowledging that like everything around you has creative labor in it. So if you're following someone on, like if I'm just me and I'm following an artist on Instagram whose work I've always admired, but you know, I can't afford or I'm not, or I don't have that much money. Like, can I Venmo them like 20 bucks right now? Like, cause every little thing would make a difference. I, I think that the biggest thing though is, is really like what's going to happen now is governmental advocacy because we need something like a WPA, which I don't know that this administration would do without being really pushed to it, just given <laughs> given who our president is. <laughs> um, but do we have you to find... Trump wants to support the arts? <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, but that's why we have that's why we have to band behind groups like uh, Americans for the Arts, which is an advocacy group, which goes and does the hard work of lobbying. They know they have the relationships, the network. So if it's even if it's simply taking their survey, so that they know how financially impacted you are, that's a step that you can take. I think you know pulling together. I, th- I actually just before getting on this call, they're pulling together a group of leaders in the arts to talk about like what are the different scenarios and what are the things we can be doing on a state and federal level, um, and then also what is the private sector able to contribute to to this as well. For us, I think it's, if we don't have that group fighting for the arts, like we're kind of screwed in the, with this administration. So I, I believe very firmly in the work that they do. And I know I was fortunate actually, right as all this hit, I met, that's the first time I met someone from the organization was at Four Freedoms Congress in LA and, and the end of February, beginning of March, the last, the last trip I took before everything got closed down. And it felt sort of like fortuitous, the timing of meeting this, this woman and she's incredible the work that they're doing and the and the way that they're trying to think about how we care for the future of culture in the United States. And these are the way that our systems work. So we have to figure out how we can push against them. So even if it's calling your representative, if you don't feel like you want to work with them, like with this advocacy group, call your representative and, and say like, where is the money for the creative workforce? I mean, I know people who are like, I used to own a gallery. If I was only, if that was my only job, if I just owned the gallery right now, very unlikely I get an, a small business loan because the income is so varied with exhibition shows, very unlikely or actually unlikely I'd be able to get unemployment because I would be an owner of a business taking a draw. So I can't apply for unemployment, even though my business might sort of be a teetering on the edge. So the way that these bills and these relief packages have been structured don't actually help most creative people, even though they opened it up to freelancers, but it doesn't help if you're like, most freelancers are like single owner businesses. (laughs) Like you're owning a small cultural space. Yeah. You're like, I know. Everything I've applied for, I've gotten back the, you technically don't qualify. And I'm like, cool. Well, I'm still a citizen that still pays taxes that would still like to get support. Mm-hmm. And twelve and a twelve hundred dollars stimulus parts. check isn't going to do anything. Um, at least not if you're living in San Francisco or New York. It's not going to do much at all. Yeah, I think about. I mean, my rent is more than that. You know. Absolutely. Even doubling that doesn't equal my situation of my mortgage and maintenance. But I do, you know, the the way that these laws have been structured so far haven't been helpful, but yet the airline industry is getting a $25 billion bailout and it employs a hundred million people, or sorry, employs 10 million people. The arts at like its most 
like strict definition in, um, according to a 2016 report employed 14.2 million. So more people than the airline industry, but they get a $25 billion bailout. Anyways, it's, it's, it's disheartening, but like there's going to be another, there's going to be another round of stimulus. And so I'm just doing what I can to figure out how we can be strong advocates for making sure creative labor is actually compensated for in this. And the WPA is the last time that we really ever valued creative labor. It's the last time that we saw it as like an integral part of our culture and our society. So we need something similar to that that creates jobs for all these people who are now without who probably had to shutter businesses or are unable to make exist off of sales of their own art or their own design practice whatever it might be bleak sorry guys <laughs> no i'm like i i feel bad because i get i mean i'm sure i'm in the same boat as everyone right now where it's like every time you start thinking about it you just get really mad and really depressed and then you try to do some art to distract yourself and you're like well now i can't do anything yeah um it's just it's a really weird time to be alive but you also shouldn't yeah. be hard on yourself if you don't feel like making work right now don't make work like yeah that's okay it's it's not we don't i think that's the other thing as we as we were talking about before but following like the pressures of how the art industry has now started to shift and look like every other industry where everything's delivered like perfectly packaged in a specific way that pressure also to produce comes from that same cycle and you know the only way to stop that is to push against it and also be honest like i don't feel like making anything okay that's great it's been hard for me to read books in this period and i'm like usually a, a voracious reader so you know you just have to kind of accept what the reality is and not be too hard on yourself yeah Yeah. i have been seeing around and i'm sure you've probably seen it as well just these memes that are like if you haven't started your side hustle or started your next business then like you you don't lack time you lack discipline and that stuff just pisses me off so much because we're all in circumstances that like perfectly emulate the setting of depression and it's like here you go try to figure out how to make it work without seeing your friends or going outside or you know doing the normal things that you normally do it, it's hard and reminding yourself that it's okay to not do anything mm-hmm. is really important and really hard but i think I, i'm glad that we're discussing that right now. <laughs> yeah yeah we're all trying to navigate both the emotional and the practical side of where we are and this is obviously going to look different for everyone although this is a collective experience that we're going through it's also you know impacting all of us in really personal individualized ways so I know that Amanda and I have talked off the record about the emotional roller coaster that it's been and I know that I haven't been to the studio in weeks and have been you know just focused on other things so I think that it's important to check in with ourselves and to to determine what what we have the capacity for but i'm also incredibly grateful for you know all of the people that are working working on the front line so to speak i mean both in healthcare but of course but also um in the arts you know like people like you that are doing this advocacy work that are able to to think ahead and to 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 use this time to make meaningful progress towards you know what i think has been exposed as these really huge structural issues that you know we're we're all kind of dealing with and suffering from now so i I know that I really appreciate that and it's it is helpful to hear about you know what are some of the actionable steps we can take I think once we get past that initial like state of paralysis where you know it just you're just caught in the emotion of of everything and trying to to mentally process to then think about okay you know what do I need to do in this time like what kind of resources do I have where am I at financially and like what what can I now be doing once we are in that place knowing what what options are out there 
is really helpful and important, both for ourselves personally, but also collectively. So there's also, just to plug it, um, they released it pretty quickly, but the Creative Independent released a financial guide for this time too. So trying to understand like what your means are now, like if going into it, and then how you should handle your money as best as possible during that. So just want to plug that because I think it's incredibly helpful for creative people to see that. Oh yeah, and we yeah. can link that in our show notes so anyone listening can just open the show notes, follow a link and go straight to it and figure out how, how you can financially be okay right now. Yeah, or, or just how to like, if you have to use credit cards, what you should be using them for, you know, things like that, how you can handle your finances better so that you're not totally slammed coming out of this. Yeah, we also need those stories of resiliency. You know, I think we do need to hear from other people on how they're navigating it because it can feel very isolating, even though there is this knowledge that we are all going through this together, just A, because of the physical distance, but again, B, because we're all having to to process this um, as individuals. Like we're, there is this real sense of isolation. So I think hearing, you know, just in solidarity from other people um, is is also really important during this time. I don't mean to make this incredibly personal, but as someone, um, and I think, you know, Amanda and I are in a similar boat here, but as someone who, who also graduated from college at the onset of the last recession, what, what would you say to young art students who are graduating today? That's a big question. <laughs> Well, here's four seniors right now. I know. I live across the street from Pratt too. So, <laughs> um, here's what we know: like creative work has always existed and will continue to exist. And I think this is. I mean, this. I. I. I so, like, I've been through September the 11th was like of cognizant age to understand September the 11th I was in high school um, and now the recession too um, graduated right into it these things are going to happen I think for a generation of people this might be the first thing that they're really experiencing as an adult um, my colleague Daniel actually that's actually part of why he was like I don't know if I should speak about this because <laughs> this is the first like in, in his adult life this is the first major crisis he's been through we've all weathered it and we will continue to I think the dream of graduating and just making your work and being this like fortunate artist who can live off of the work has been eroding for decades um, and is definitely gone right now. So I think you have to be really prepared to think about how you might actually be able to make a living and that your art is going to be a side part of your life. Doesn't mean that it can't be everything, like that it can't fulfill you, but you have to be realistic with yourself about what your opportunities are going to be. But it doesn't always have to be that way. And these things can continue to grow and change because again, creative work is essential and will always exist. So reminding yourself of that, but also being realistic with what the, what the situation is. And also like we were just saying, if you like, don't feel like making anything, it's okay right now. Like don't put so much pressure on yourself. It's okay to experience, be in this moment and experience it how you're experiencing it. But remember that it's not going to be the end of the world because we've been through these things before. Um, this is the closest thing to the Great Depression that's happened. So we'll see what happens, like I keep saying, but from a federal level to support this. Um, but from here, I think being realistic with yourself and knowing that your practice will come back and will be worthwhile is, is good to remind yourself of. Yeah, taking that long that long view, being able to, to step back and, and take that long-term perspective uh, is really helpful because, you know, again, it, it feels like we're, we're so immersed in it right now. We're in the midst of it. And there are so many things that we don't, we, we just don't know what it's going to look like. And that can be a difficult space to sit with. But, you know, I think about it too, sometimes in, in terms of the creative process, I think having to sit with 
discomfort or, you know, sit with ambiguity and to really spend time in this place of, um, of uncertainty is something that, you know, if, if anybody is prepared to, to manage that, I think it, it's creative people. That's sort of the space that their, their work or their creative process exists in, you know, so it's not always easy, but I, I believe in that too. And so it is helpful to hear. And I think just to be reminded that, again, this is something that too will pass and it's not that we'll necessarily go back to normal or the way things were. But how but the way I, things were wasn't so great anyway. So, <laughs> you know, it had a lot of problems. I'm not saying what's, what we're going to come out of this with is going to be great either, but we have an opportunity to change some things right now and God willing, we're able to. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't talked about so far or, or haven't addressed that you think is important to share or that you wanted to make sure that we covered? Uh, no, I mean, I think we covered most stuff. The only thing I would, yeah, but I kind of said it before, is like if you have the means to, to care for a creative community, like if you have the means to support an artist, now's a good time to try and do it. Um, and, and at whatever level that's at, I think to me that's incredibly important is knowing that people are still getting and it could be surprise income, but like some money coming from somewhere to support them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every little bit does help. So I, I think that's especially true now. If you feel like you're not in a position to make it a large donation, that's perfectly okay. And even five, ten, twenty dollars can make a huge difference for somebody um, when added up. I feel like Kickstarter is a perfect example of that. It is the power of those collective contributions. So <laughs> yeah, and if you feel like running a Kickstarter project, I'm here. <laughs> But I think actually to, to tie to that, it is a good example of this is that we know, like I said at the beginning, like there aren't as many projects running, but the amount of like the proportion of money going to each project is the same. So people are supporting creative work right now. So we should take some solace in knowing yeah. that um, because we know that there are going to be loyal supporters of things still. Yeah. yeah. And Nicole and I talked about this a little bit on I guess our last release little episode where like I came from a primarily like wholesale business model and that obviously is not happening now because retail stores are not open so Mm -hmm. I can't sell my work to stores but my kind of wholesale income has for the most part shifted over to individual sales which was really supplementary before but putting out that call of honesty of like hey guys I'm an artist who like is now married to someone who's on unemployment I mean Mm -hmm. we were married before but now he's on unemployment (laughs) and I am now the sole breadwinner Mm -hmm. so that's fun and like even just putting that out there, a lot of people that were like, oh, I've been following you for years. And like, now I'm finally getting that thing that was in my, you know, wish list or whatever for forever. Um, and it's, it's really helped me as an artist to like, see that kind of support and like, oh, okay. I'm not just like speaking out into the void. Like there are people that want to support and it's allowed me to help support artists that I appreciate. So I think it makes are really like what you had said before where like artists are continuing to support artists i think also most yeah. of the people that have bought for me have been fellow artists that i know and like you know at least we can try to help buy each other meals yeah, i guess you're right pass it around between each other yeah we'll just keep the art money circling <laughs> that's really heartening to hear though hopefully the government will give us more yeah well they have to <laughs> keep showing up mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I think it's, again, so important to hear 
to hear from people and to hear this perspective and especially someone like you who has this dynamic background of working in the arts um, on the gallery side and now working with artists through your role at Kickstarter and um, just the ways that you're seeing artists supporting one another, uh, ways that we all can continue to support creative work, uh, making that more visible, advocating for that um, at a, a higher level you know, those are all things that are going to help us get through this time. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and have this conversation and to bring, bring that perspective to us. Thank you for so me. much for having me. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and stop recording. Um, I guess we can all do the same.